0: These are the oldest stories online at oldeststories.net. The nature of the Late Bronze Age means that our episodes will be jumping around a bit as we take a look at the somewhat interconnected but also somewhat independent tales of the great powers. Honestly, I'm still not sure how I will be structuring the final century of the Bronze Age with its multiple interconnected narratives, but rest assured that after this, We enter into the Age of Empires, where I'll have some lengthy, but much more well-attested tales of pretty much one kingdom or empire at a time. But until we get there, we'll have to endure a bit of jumping around first. Now we haven't really seen the Hittites much since episode 65, when we left them in the nadir of a dark age. Hittite history, for those of you who don't feel like going back and re listening to the old episodes, was one of great ups and downs. The great conquering king Hattushili brought them into empire, and his grandson Mershili took them to the peak of the Old Kingdom, with the greatest expansion of Hittite territory into Syria, and ultimately to the great sack of Babylon in 1595. After that, there were a number of kings who all seemed to be involved in regicide in one way or another, but perhaps because of this, they tended to stay home a lot, and as a result, managed to do a little bit of stabilization in the Hittite Empire for the first time in its history. We no longer see the complete collapses that used to be common in every successive generation, and with the coming of the great law-giving king Tlipanu, who decided to hold future kings accountable for their acts of regicide and to stop the cycle of violence personally. What used to be a pretty ad hoc kingship starts now to look a little bit more stable. As soon as Telepanu died, the regicide began again, with his son Aluamna being offed around 1490 BCE by the very man that Telepanu had granted mercy for a previous murder. However, Though we've flashed back in time nearly 200 years from where our Babylonian episodes left off, we'll see that here, too, time will fly. This isn't time flying because we're having fun. Rather, the entire 15th century BC is as poorly attested here in the Hittite homeland of Hatti as it is in the rest of the Near East. However, like in Babylon, there are a few important details that will keep us busy as we move forward. We pick up our story in 1490 BCE with the son of the dead Aluwamna, Hantili II. Unlike previous royal murders, the killer of Aluwamna was not allowed to take the throne, and instead the normal succession was practiced. Hantili ruled for quite some time over a particularly eventful period. How long he reigned and what all he did, however, is mostly obscure. The territory of the Hittite kingdom at this point is pretty stable, but they're surrounded on all sides by hostile neighbors and enemies. Most significant for the Hittites at this point is not actually the Mitanni, though they continue to threaten Hittite interests in Syria and along the shared border, but the northern Kaskans, the barbarians of the North Black Sea coast, and perhaps into the Caucasus Mountains. It isn't completely clear if the invasion of Neric happened under Hantili I, who was mentioned in a previous episode, or under Han the II a century later, which goes to show just how poor our understanding of this whole period is. But whatever the case, it seems that even this later great king experienced a Cascan surge in the north that would have battered populations in the fortified towns and villages, if not completely overrun many of them. With substantial threats to the north and east, we see Hantili taking a new tack with some of his neighbors. To the south, in the region where the old Hittite great kings used to pass through on their way to Syria, a new kingdom has emerged, independent of the weakened Hittites called Kizawatna. It seems that Hantili realized he wasn't going to be able to reconquer this region anytime soon. And so to prevent them from allying with the Mitanni and opening up another front for the eastern Hurrians to assault through, he signed a remarkably equitable treaty, the oldest such treaty that we have on record for the Hittite state. We don't have the entire text. As usual, there are damages in it. But from what we have, it appears that the two kings deal with a number of issues relating to their common border in a way that considers each king as an equal. An example clause dealing with the issue of envoys reads, If the great king sends either his son or a subject to Patatisu, king of Kizuwatna, Patatissu shall not harm him. And if Patatissu sends either his son or his subject to the great king, the great king shall not harm him. These sorts of reciprocal arrangements are made for fugitives, in which a lawbreaker or rebel who flees into the neighboring country will be returned home to face justice, as well as for the semi-nomadic populations who wander across the borders for their own reasons, who should be turned back and returned to the original nation. Similarly, if either king hears reports of planned sedition or rebellion in the other country, they'll notify the other king. And if any sort of criminal commits a cross border crime, restitution is set out for those cases as well. All we see here is a profoundly porous border. Indeed, it seems that the concerns with the nomads is that it will be impossible for them to know and unlikely for them to even care about such obscure political concerns as which kingdom they're technically part of. In this middle period, neither Hattusha nor Kizawatna is able to reliably assert their authority over this border region, partly because each state is weak, but also because these mountains are just remarkably difficult terrain that would be hard for even a modern nation to fully control. In reports outside of this particular treaty, we hear of bandits strong enough to level whole villages on both sides of the border, an example of the frontier lawlessness in the region. It's hard to say what else Hantili did with his reign, likely striking out at least every other year on campaign in one direction or another. But unlike past kings, he managed to hold what he had without gaining or losing anything of significance. Hantili died after an unknown amount of time and was succeeded by his nephew Zidanta II. While Zedanta would begin his reign well by renewing the treaty with kizawatna under quite similar terms of mutual parity, he would accomplish quite little while on the throne. And the main drama of his kingship would be events occurring outside of his borders, driven by a minor king named Idrimi, who would upset the apple cart for the entire Syrian region. Idrimi was raised as a prince in Aleppo, in Syria, in a time when all the states of Syria were under similar pressures. The Hittites were nearby, but the Mitanni and Egyptians were quite strong and expanding. There was little hope for a completely unaligned city to survive, so the question for each king was which alliance would give them the best deal, while still protecting them from outside attack. At the same time, there were still all the internal pressures that his king had to deal with, internal both within the city, but also with regard to the little attacks and raids that each Syrian city would be sending out against each other on a regular basis. Isn't clear what exactly had his family kicked out of Aleppo, but it's here that one of the most remarkable inscriptions which survives from this century begins. In Aleppo, my ancestral home, a hostile incident occurred so that we had to flee with the people to the land of Emar, my mother's relatives, and stay there. My older brothers also stayed with me, but none of them had the plans I had. So I, Idrimi, son of Ilim-Ilima, devoted to the gods Im, Habat, and Ishtar, thought to myself, whoever seeks out his patrimony, is a great nobleman, but whoever remains among the citizens of Emar is a mere vassal. And so I took my horse, chariot, and groom, and went away. Though Idrimi's story is told much like a literary tale, with conventions that are starting to be seen more and more in contemporary fictional and mythic tales, there's good reason to think that, despite how exceptional and compelling Idrimi's tale is, it's likely true at least overall. We could perhaps quibble with the details, saying maybe he's downplaying the contributions of certain helpers, but even with a modern skeptical eye, the tale of a deposed noble setting out to reclaim his kingdom is an old and beloved trope for a very good reason. "'I crossed over the desert and came among the Sutu warriors,' Now, these are the same Sataeans who have at the same time sacked the city of Uruk, though naturally it's almost certainly a different tribe of the same ethnicity. I spent the night with them in my covered chariot. The next day I set forth and went to Canaan, to the town of Amia. People from Aleppo, Mukish he Ni'i, and Nuhashi were all living in Amia, and when they realized that I was their lord's son— They gathered to me. I said to them, I have become the chief. I have been appointed. Though whether he was appointed by the gods or by the consensus of his royal family goes unstated, it could well have been both. Then I stayed among the Habiru warriors for seven years. Now, this here may be the first mention of the Habiru in this show, but I'll be devoting at least a full episode to the Habiru question later on. For now, though, it's enough to know that the Habiru are a nomadic group of warriors living on the fringes of settled society. In this time, I released birds for divination and practiced extipacy. In the seventh year, the omens revealed that the gods Im became favorably inclined towards me, and so I constructed a few ships and had my auxiliary troops board them, and we proceeded by sea to the town of Mukish he I reached land at Mount Cassius, and we went ashore. Now, when my country heard of me, they brought me large cattle and small cattle, and in one day in unison the regions of Ni'i, Nuhasha, Mukesh and my new capital of Alalach became reconciled to me. When my allies heard, they came to me, and when they concluded a treaty with me, I established them truly as my allies. So what happened here appears to not have been an invasion. That doesn't mean Idrami just walked in and demanded kingship, but instead when he arrived at the head of an army composed of mercenaries and refugees, likely with a fair number of chariots in tow, the legitimacy of his claim, backed up by the strength of the army, convinced these four cities to simply surrender and accept him as king. With a few cities backing him up, the neighboring kings seemed to have gone over to his side fairly quickly, a good indicator that his army was indeed substantial, and that he has gone from Habiru outcast to regional power remarkably quickly. And, though the tale of Idrimi itself doesn't tell us this, one of the kings who joined with him was Pilia of Kizuwatna, who had only recently concluded a treaty with the Hittite king Zidanta II. But wait, there's more. Now, for seven years, Bharatarna, the mighty king, king of the Hurrian warriors, meaning king of the Mitanni, was hostile to me. In the seventh year I sent my man Anwanda to Baratarna, the mighty king, the king of the Hurrian warriors, and told him of the treaties of my ancestors when they were allied with Mitanni, and that our actions were pleasing to those former kings of Mitanni, for they had made binding agreements with them. The mighty king of Mitanni heard all of these things and verified his copies of the ancient treaties, and so on, in accordance with these old treaties, I sent him the appropriate level of tribute. I then presented him with gestures of loyalty, which were considerable. I made great sacrifices and restored to him a lost estate. I swore to him a binding oath as loyal vassal. Then I became king." With this Mitanni Treaty, Idrimi is now an established as a major power in the region, with an army strong enough to attack whoever he wants, and an ally strong enough to back him up should anything go wrong. But more significantly for our Hittite story, Kizawatna has now moved onto the wrong side of the fence, the Syrian-Hurrian side, and the Hittites now have no border on which they do not face enemies it seems that Idrimi is fully aware of the situation. He says, "...kings from all around attacked me in Alalach, which is almost certainly the Hittites and the Syrian cities that had thrown in their lot with Hattusha. Just as they had heaped upon the ground the corpses of my ancestors, corpse upon corpse, so I too caused their corpses to be heaped upon the ground, thus putting an end to their warfare." Then I took troops and attacked Hattiland, hitting seven cities under their protection, which he then mentions, saying each one he destroyed. Hattiland did not assemble and did not march against me, so I did whatever I wanted. I took captives from them and took their property, valuables, and possessions and distributed them among my auxiliaries, kinsmen, and friends. Together with them, I took booty." And so it seems that not only were the Hittites beaten when they attacked, they were beaten so badly that they were unable to put together a counter-strike to Idrimi's raid. Is it possible that Idrimi is exaggerating some of the details here? Of course it is. But also, the fact that he can lay claim to such a raid at all is clear proof that the inability of the Hittites in this period not just to expand, but even to defend territory pretty close to their homeland. The treaty with Kizzuwatna was meant to keep a buffer between the Hittite homeland of Hatti and any southern attacks from Syria, but with the faithless southerners jumping ship and joining Mitanni, King Zedanta found himself in quite a bind, unable to defend even his own towns. As for Idrami, however, he concludes his tale with a happy ending. Then I returned to Mukish, and entered my capital of Alalach. With the captives' goods, property, and possessions, which I brought back from Hatti, I had a palace built. I made my regime like the regime of kings. I made my brothers like royal brothers, my sons like royal sons, my relatives like royal relatives. The inhabitants who were in my land I made to dwell securely, and even those who did not have a dwelling I settled. Then I organized my land and made my cities like they were before. Just as our ancestors had established regular rites for the gods of Alalach, and just as our forefathers had performed sacrifices, I constantly performed them. These things I did... And I entrusted them to my son Imnirari. Though this statue is written in Idrimi's voice, it contains a note at the bottom that he ruled for 30 years, suggesting that it was in fact his son who erected the monument for his father. In any case, Zidanta's story is looking pretty bleak, and we see that Mitanni, ruling over a pretty massive network of allies just like Idrimi, is pretty near its territorial height. Now, for those interested, I found a little map that discusses this particular period and shows the massive chunk that's been bitten out of the once-massive Hittite Empire. I've posted it in the show notes for this episode at oldeststories.net. But the online map probably has the most relevance for the next king, taking over after Zedanta's death, Haziah II. It can be hard to credit it, but this next king is even more obscure than his predecessor. We don't even know for sure how the two were related, though it seems to have been a standard succession within the family. Like Zedanta, Heziah's reign was overshadowed by events in the rest of the world, specifically the campaigns of Tutmos III against the Mitanni. In response to this attack, Hazziah seems to have thrown what little weight he still had behind Egypt, sending tributes to the pharaoh alongside the kings in Asher and Babylon in hopes that the pharaoh, not the great king of the Hittites, would be the man to break Mitanni power. The only other thing history remembers of Hazziah II is that he was murdered by a man outside the dynasty, Muatali, who is probably Heziah's head bodyguard. And a few years later, Muatali would in turn be killed by the head of the palace servants, signifying the end of the Middle Hittite period, a period about which so little is known that I couldn't even fill an entire episode about it. and Even then, it was completely overshadowed by the epic of some random minor Syrian flash-in-the-pan. Really, the story of the Middle Hittite period is the story of Mitanni's rise, and we don't know much about Mitanni's rise, so we don't know much about this period in general. In Babylon, at the same time, the Kassite kings are busy doing not very much, and in Assyria, the curtain is falling on Assyrian independence. But all this changes at least for the Hittites, with the death of Muatali and the rise of King Tudhalia II. Those with a better memory for names than I have may be wondering where Tudhalia I was, but it seems that whoever he was, he existed way back in the ancient times, some obscure ancestor to the first proper Hittite great king, Hattushili, whose existence isn't even certain. Alternately, there are some who believe that there was a younger Tudhalia, son of the main king, but either that he only sat on the throne very briefly or was murdered before taking the throne. And so you'll sometimes see this Tudhalia called the first and sometimes the second, but we'll be going with the second because, eh, seems like it's the more popular version. Anyway, the murder of King Muatali, though he was himself a regicide, quickly split the court between the civil and military factions. The civil faction was led by a man named Kantuzili, as well as some others. They were backing Tudhalia for the throne. It was for a long time unclear why among historians, Tudhalia was selected by the faction, but more recent evidence suggests that he may have been the grandson of the murdered Hosiah II, which would make him a restoration of the older royal line. Opposing these restorationists was a man named Mua, who led the royal bodyguards and likely had support of many parts of the Hittite military. It seems, though, that they didn't have quite enough military strength, and reached out to the old enemy, the Mitanni, for military aid. What they promised the Mitanni is not clear, but fortunately for Hittite independence, the Great Civil War came down to a single massive clash between Kantuzili and Tudhalia, alongside an array of Hittite chariots, against Mu'a and his Marianu allies. Moa and the Mitanni were defeated utterly in the battle, and Tidhalia was established as the new great king of the Hittites. Tidhalia, however, was not content with the mediocrity into which his kingdom had fallen, and as soon as he took the throne, he began to look eastward, towards the now dominant Mitanni kingdom, at the great threat they represented, and at the great pile of treasure they ruled over in the Syrian cities. However, there would be no chance of attacking the Mitanni without first attending to the seemingly smaller problems on his western and northern flanks. And so, as soon as he had stabilized the situation within Hatti itself, Tudhalia set out to begin his eastward conquest by traveling west. It seems that in the centuries of Hittite weakness, room had grown for another power to rise in western Anatolia. It seems a place called Arzawa, which had, much like the Hittites and Mitanni before them, risen from a central power base to dominate a number of nearby states, turning them into vassal kings. What exactly Arzawan power looked like is unclear. It wasn't an empire, it was far too loose and feudal for that, and it wasn't a mere confederation for it seems a bit more unified than that, but whatever it was, it was a concentration of force on Hattusha's backyard. This, naturally, could not be tolerated by the expansionist Tithalia. We have no details of this campaign, only records of the places he conquered, which seem like a pretty extensive list of the known and a few of the unknown spots on the West Anatolian map. Then, Tidhalia withdrew, taking with him a good deal of plunder. Perhaps most significantly, Tidhalia tried something new, something a bit counterintuitive, by plundering not just the valuables and non-combatants, but taking as his prize thousands of infantry soldiers and 500 chariot teams, the horses, the carts, and the men themselves. These last he resettled, all together as one unit, on another part of the empire, hoping that being cut off from their homeland would keep them docile and make them support the Hittite regime. I think already we can see the potential hazards here, but before those can happen, Tudhalia was barely back in Hattusha when all the kingdoms he'd just beaten up in a large campaign or possibly series of campaigns united and declared war on him. Twenty-two nations, many of whom had not been hit in the last campaign, all saw what Tudhalia had just done to Arzawa and collectively decided that they needed to concentrate their forces and keep the Hittites in their place, lest western Anatolia start to become their place as well. This confederation was a significant moment in world history, despite the fact that the war would be concluded in short order, with these nations being plundered just as thoroughly as Arzawa's vassals had. In his annals, Tudhalia would come to call this new confederation the lands of Ashua. and in the listing of nations which comprised it, we see the land of Luga, which is the home of the folks who will in classical Greek times come to be called the Lycians, as well as the region of Wilusia and the city of Tarusia. These two also have more famous Greek names Wilusia being the region of Ilium, and Tarusia becoming the city of Troy, the epicenter of the great Trojan War, which is recounted in the Greek poet Homer's epic, the Iliad. Though it was debated for a long time, modern archaeologists are now increasingly certain that a certain excavation on the northwest coast of Anatolia is in fact the city of Troy on which the Trojan War was based. Something that we will be taking a look at when we get into the very busy few decades right around 1200 BCE. The war between the Asua confederation and the Hittites, while probably affecting the city of Troy itself, was not the war of the Iliad. This is just an event occurring which involves the city, and possibly the first time it shows up in the context of the Near East. But this isn't all. This confederation, which appears to have been a somewhat impromptu coalition arising in response to the previous year's Hittite aggression, would end up giving its name to the region well into Roman times, with Ashua transmitting into the Greek as Asia. As this province sits on the edge of the continent and is one of the first places one steps when traveling overland from Europe to points eastward, this name Asia came over time to designate the entirety of the largest continent on the planet Earth. Though it is just a name, and it really could have been anything, it is a bit of fun historical trivia that everything from Turkey to Korea, from Russia down to India, is all named for an impromptu historical coalition against Hittite expansionism 3,500 years ago. Anyway, here, the two armies drew up near each other, having decided on some particular battlefield, and made camp. The full might of the Hittite army squared off against the full might of the independent states of western Anatolia. And then, the night before the great battle, Tudhalia grabbed all his men and chariots. And put generations of nighttime military practice into use, attacking the Ashuan camp while they were sleeping and overwhelming them completely. Like the Arzawans, the Ashuan nations were pillaged of goods and even fighting men. While there are modern maps which clearly show all of western Anatolia under Hittite control at this point, this is most likely mistaken it's not clear that the Hittites demanded any sort of formal vassalage from their defeated enemies after these two campaigns. It's likely that the value of western Anatolia was, in fact, pretty minimal, while the expense and difficulty of patrolling and keeping an eye on the countless tiny valley towns was great. And so, Tuthalia was quite happy to have broken the power of the Western kingdoms and prevented them from either confederating or having one power grow into regional dominance. At least for a while. Also, I suspect that he was quite pleased with the plunder he received, including what he expected would be a substantial boost to his military capacity, with thousands of new infantry and hundreds of new chariots. While we will be seeing this resettlement failing in a very predictable way, denuding Western Anatolia of perhaps a bit over 10,000 fighting men was effective in keeping the Hittite rear flank neutered, while Tuthalia turned to focus on his greater priorities in the east. However, shortly after the death of the Ashuan Confederation, the resettled soldiers who had all been placed in the same region rebelled violating their oaths before the god of the sun and the god of storms, which, according to the inscription of the event, irritated Tudhalia quite substantially. He vented his frustration by crushing this rebellion, said to have included 10,000 men and 600 chariots, which itself tells us that Tudhalia's main Hittite army must have been even more substantial than this, which would, only a few generations ago, already be counted as a full army for a major power. Perhaps the numbers were pretty close on either side, the difference being made up by the superior Hittite training and tactics, but either way, Tudalia has, in three campaigns, demonstrated that he is turning the Hittite military machine into a force to be reckoned with. He wanted to take a break at this point, a moment to allow his kingdom and army to recover from the multiple successive years of campaigning. But it seems that while he's been distracted in the west, and before he could properly focus on the east, the Cascans of the north attacked, devastating farmlands and villages for miles into Hatti. But at this point, no mere local threat can stop the Hittites, and Tidali's armies were able to chase them back into the mountains where they came from. These sorts of campaigns will plague the Hittites for the rest of their history. They win nothing more than a few years' respite from the otherwise ceaseless raidings, and as far as we can tell, the Kaskans are really no worse off for having been driven back into their homes. After this, Tuthalia was finally able to take his year-long break, then turn his attentions to a threat on the east Along the eastern border, the land of Isua had gained Tudhalia's attention by raiding extensively while the Hittite army had been occupied in the west and had become a vassal of the Mitanni. This checked all the boxes Tudhalia was looking for, small enough to be bullied and close enough to the Mitanni to be a blow against the eastern neighbor without attacking them directly. The war was quick but not quick enough to keep a number of Isuan loyalists from fleeing across the border to seek refuge in the Mitanni state itself. And so, though he must surely have known what it would provoke, Tudhalia sent a letter to the king of Mitanni which read, The people of Isua fled before my son and descended to the land of Hurri. I, my son, sent word to the Hurrian, and Let's pause just right here to note briefly that in now in all Hittite royal correspondence, the kings have started calling themselves my son, sort of like my maj your Majesty, my Majesty's, calling himself the sun, as in the great flaming ball in the sky. Now they don't seem to have formally deified themselves, but rather the Hittite throne has by now become so closely associated with its protective deity, one of the sun gods, which has over time shifted from being principally the storm god to being principally the sun god, that he's seemingly writing about himself as if he were acting on behalf of the sun. Anyway, he says in his chronicle that he sent word to the Hurrians saying, Extradite my subjects, these rebels who fled into your land but the Hurrian sent back word to me, my son, as follows. No, those cities had previously, in the days of my grandfather, come to the land of Hurri and settled there. It is true that they later went back to the land of Hurri as refugees, but now finally the cattle have chosen their stable, and they've definitely come back to my country." So the Hurrian did not extradite my subjects to me, my son. While the Hurrians may not have been interested in extraditing the anti-Hittite rebels to face trial in Hattusha, they did send a message of another kind, entering the now Hittite-occupied land of Isua for raiding and plundering, targeting particularly those regions who had become most loyal to the Hittites. The Hittite armies had already gotten distracted again on one of their many other frontiers. However, the message had been sent. The Hittites had beaten back the neighbors who had been encroaching around them, re-established themselves as a solid regional power, and were getting ready to face off against the great existential threat of the 1400s, the Mitanni Kingdom. But it won't be Tudhalia who wins all these victories at least not by himself. Next week, we're going to get in deep with the affairs of the great nations, first appointing his son as co-regent, then by launching a series of campaigns that will see alliances shifting, the Hittite Empire nearly collapsing, and ultimately the complete destruction of the Hittite Empire. So join us next week as Empire's trade blows and see the shockwaves that ripple across the Near East.